You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. For the Love of Humanity This association between charity and love for humanity is echoed in the etymology of the word philanthropy, coined in 2500 BC by the playwright of Prometheus Bound. In the story, when the tyrannical god Zeus threatens to destroy humans, the god Prometheus, whose name means forethought, gives them, out of his philanthropos tropos, or humanity-loving character, two empowering, life-enhancing gifts, fire and hope. As a result, philanthropia came to be regarded by the Greeks as one of the keys to civilization. Aristotle also had something to say on the matter. He said, To give away money is an easy matter and in any man's power, but to decide to whom to give it and how large and when and for what purpose and how is neither in every man's power nor an easy matter. Seneca likewise philosophized on the subject, saying that a benefit consists not in what is done or given, but the intention of the giver or doer. Although this classical view of philanthropy all but disappeared in the Middle Ages, it re-emerged in the early 17th century. Francis Bacon referred to the Greek concept in his essay on goodness, and Henry Cockerham cited philanthropy as a synonym for humanity in his English Dictionary of 1623. Bacon went on to say, The desire for power in excess caused angels to fall. The desire for knowledge in excess caused man to fall. But in charity is no excess, neither can man or angels come into danger by it. Philanthropy set down American roots when, in 1837, Ralph Waldo Emerson celebrated the philanthropic spirit of the revolution in his Concord hymn. In his 1844 essay, The Young American, he wrote, It seems so easy for America to inspire and express the most expansive and humane spirit. Newborn, free, healthful, strong, the land of the laborer, of the Democrat, and of the philanthropist, of the believer, of the saint. She should speak for the human race. It is the country of the future. Philanthropic Traditions There are records of early philanthropists throughout the world, as many of the 58 country contributors to the World Guide to CSR attest. One of the oldest traditions dates from the Ottoman era, which peaked in the 16th and 17th centuries, where successful merchants or nobles would often establish a vakif, which would act as a fund that could be used to maintain a mosque, pay for education, establish public works such as plumbing or water fountains, build healthcare facilities, or support the fine arts. Even today, powerful business dynasties in Turkey use this ancient vehicle for philanthropy. In Sierra Leone, at the close of the 18th century, British philanthropists concerned about the welfare of the unemployed black poor established the St. George's Bay Company to stimulate economic development. 
In another initiative, the Sierra Leone Company facilitated the return of several groups of formerly enslaved Africans who went on to found Freetown in 1792. Similarly, many of the wealthiest Azerbaijanis in Baku during the oil boom of the late 1800s and early 1900s belonged to a charitable organization, the Muslim Philanthropic Society, which collected money to support vulnerable groups. Other examples include the Caspian Black Sea Oil Industrial and Trading Society, created by the Rothschilds in 1883, and the Council of the Baku Petro-Industrialists, which was involved in the construction of hospitals and schools. In Pakistan, they have the tradition of the Islamic model, whereby a kind of trust fund is established, which is a religious endowment for charitable or educational purposes, often in the form of property. For instance, in 1906, the Said brothers founded the House of Medicine Herbal Pharmacy, and the family leadership of the next generation declared it uh, as a trust in 1953, as it prospered. Other examples include the Hamdard University and the Forkan Orphanage. American icons. Without discounting these and many other international examples, it is true to say that many of the most iconic philanthropists emerged from the United States. Apart from the Rockefellers, there was the steel and railroad magnate Cornelius Vanderbilt, who lived from 1794 to 1877. He was not only like Rockefeller one of the richest Americans that ever lived, but also one of the most generous. Among his philanthropic activities, he gave $1 million, the largest charitable gift in American history at the time, to endow what would become Thunderbolt University, named in his honor. Even more interesting, perhaps, was Andrew Carnegie, who lived between 1835 and 1919. He was a Scottish-American industrialist who also made his fortune from steel and who developed an entire philosophy of business and philanthropy. Starting as a worker in a bobbin factory and ending as one of the richest men in America, his rags-to-riches story turned him into a poster boy for the American dream. Carnegie wrote in his diary at age 33 that the amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry and no idol is more debasing than the worship of money. Nevertheless, by the 1890s, Carnegie Steel was the largest and most profitable industrial enterprise in the world. What was different, however, was Carnegie's attitude to the money, which he saw as a profane means to a more enlightened end. He said, Man does not live by bread alone. I have known millionaires starving for lack of the nutriment, which alone can sustain all that is human in man. And I know workmen, and many so-called poor men, who revel in luxuries beyond the powers of those millionaires to reach. It is the mind that makes the body rich. There is no class so pitiably wretched as that which possesses money and nothing else. Money can only be the useful drudge of things immeasurably higher than itself. Exalted beyond this, as sometimes is, it remains Caliban, still and still plays the beast. My aspirations take a higher flight. 
Mind be it to have contributed to the enlightenment and the joys of the mind, to the things of the spirit, to all that tends to bring into the lives of the toilers of Pittsburgh's sweetness and light. I hold this the noblest possible use of wealth. Carnegie later distilled his approach into a three-part dictum. One, to spend the first third of one's life getting all the education one can. Two, to spend the next third making all the money one can. And three, to spend the last third giving it all away to worthwhile causes. He elaborates on his philosophy of wealth and philanthropy in his book The Gospel of Wealth of 1889. In this book he says, This then is held to be the duty of the man of wealth. First, to set an example of modest unostentatious living, shunning display, to provide moderately for the legitimate wants of those dependent upon him, and after doing so, to consider all surplus revenues which come to him simply as trust funds, which he is strictly bound as a matter of duty to administer in the manner which, in his judgment, is best calculated to produce the most beneficial results for the community." Carnegie lived his philosophy to the end. Much of his charitable activity was directed towards education, peace, and the arts, with the founding of the Carnegie Corporation of New York to promote the advancement and diffusion of knowledge and understanding, as well as the Carnegie Endowment for the International Peace, Carnegie Mellon University, and the Carnegie Museums of Pittsburgh. He is estimated to have donated most of his wealth, over $350 million, to various causes over the course of his life, leaving behind only $30 million to his estate, obviously conscious of his own prophetic words that, and I quote, the man who dies thus rich dies disgraced. Modern Philanthropists It would be misleading to suggest that philanthropy emerged purely as a Western tradition. Many non-Western regions and countries have long and proud traditions of philanthropy. The difference, however, is that they tended historically to practice implicit philanthropy, by which I mean that it was considered culturally inappropriate and inconsistent with prevailing religious beliefs to make charitable acts public. By contrast, individual philanthropists in America and Britain have tended to be highly visible. Charity in the Western tradition evolved to become a public act, or for the more cynical, a public relations exercise. Ask anyone to name the great philanthropists of the modern era, and two names repeatedly crop up. Branded into the public consciousness as much by their stratospheric business success as their mind-boggling donations. I am referring, of course, to Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. Microsoft mogul Gates, ranked by Forbes magazine as the richest person in the world between 1995 and 2007, and with a net worth of around $58 billion in 2008, stunned fans and critics alike when he set up the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in 2000, and rapidly grew its assets to a staggering $30 billion by 2007. Equally jaw-dropping was the promise by the Oracle of Omaha investment tycoon Buffett to double the Gates Foundation assets by gifting over 80% of his personal wealth. In the spirit of Rockefeller and Carnegie, 
Gates plans to give away 95% of his wealth in his lifetime, and Buffett plans to leave his children with just enough, as he says, to do anything, but not enough to do nothing. Other individual philanthropists that have captured the public imagination include CNN founder Ted Turner, who in 1997 publicly gifted $1 billion of his then $3 billion fortune to the United Nations. George Soros, the outspoken Hungarian-born Wall Street icon and author, is said to have given away around $4 billion through his Soros Foundation and Open Society Institute, while the flamboyant British serial entrepreneur and founder of Virgin, Richard Branson, pledged all of his future profits from his airline and train businesses, estimated at the time to be around $3 billion over 10 years, as investments into clean energy. Less known by the Western public, perhaps, but no less successful or generous, are Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid, Al Maktoum, the ruler of Dubai, who established his namesake's foundation with an endowment of $10 billion, and Li Ka Shing, the Asian tycoon who, among many other business ventures, is the world's largest operator of container terminals and who has committed over $1 billion since 1980 through his foundation. In 2006, Lee also pledged to donate at least one-third of his personal wealth, then estimated to be $18.8 billion, in due course to his foundation, which he calls his third son. All of these individuals, and I could name many more, are prototypical philanthropists in the Rockefeller tradition. Their charitable activities are funded out of their personal wealth, usually through a foundation bearing their name. Their donations are highly public acts, communicated as a legacy statement, and the emphasis is on post-wealth generosity rather than the ethics or otherwise of how they made their money in the first place. Philanthro-capitalism As a result of the generosity of these high-profile philanthropists, and more to the point the vast sums of money they are channeling towards any number of social, environmental and ethical causes, it is not surprising that the concept of philanthro-capitalism has emerged in recent years. Authors of the highly acclaimed book of the same title, Matthew Bishop and Michael Green, describe this new movement as follows. Who is going to lead the fight against poverty, build a sustainable future for our economies free from the threat of climate change, and take on the social problems that divide even the richest societies? For the past century, we have looked to governments to tackle these problems, but their track record has been, at best, mixed. A group of wealthy entrepreneurs and business leaders is increasingly taking the initiative in creating these innovative new solutions. Rejecting the idea that business is about short-term profits, damn the consequences to society and the environment, these philanthrocapitalists think the winners from our economic system should give back and that business can do well by doing good. I must confess that I have a rather allergic reaction to the concept of philanthrocapitalism, not least the notion that was conveyed in the subtitle of the first edition of Bishop and Green's book, namely that the rich can save the world. 
To me, this is not only an arrogant idea and an insult to the hundreds of millions of people who are achieving self-reliance without the need for a begging bowl, but it is also misinformed. It misjudges the nature of the problem, who or what needs saving, and the root causes of many of the world's most serious challenges. It also masks the potential complicity of some of the most powerful people on the planet, namely the philanthropists themselves, in creating the very problems they are trying to alleviate. They may be the winners from our economic system, but at what and whose cost? We should not forget that whenever there are winners, there are almost inevitably losers in greater measure. My point is not that we should start a tycoon witch hunt, but rather that we have to question the appropriateness and effectiveness of philanthropy in addressing those root causes, which have more to do with the Achilles heel of Western capitalism itself, namely the environmentally unsustainable and socially inequitable growth and lifestyles that it spawns. How, for example, does philanthropic capitalism address the Western consumption, production and trade practices that are wreaking havoc with the world's ecosystems and many of the world's poorest communities? By and large, it doesn't. Giving back after the fact is just a smokescreen, notwithstanding the generosity that it shows and the benefits that result. I should add a caveat here before I get branded as some kind of heartless bastard. I am not opposed to philanthropy per se, and to the extent that philanthropic capitalism can make the charitable acts of the super-rich capitalist demigods more effective in helping societies most vulnerable, it should be supported. But for goodness sake, let us not propose it as some kind of superior model of capitalism. At heart, philanthropic capitalism bears all the hallmarks of where we have gone wrong with CSR in the first place. As dual approaches, both have completely failed to turn around the worst of our global environmental, social and ethical trends and are in all likelihood distracting us from the true cause of creating a more systemic sustainability and responsibility.